Life Audio. You are listening to The Beckett Cook Show with your host, Beckett Cook. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. To help support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash the Beckett Cook Show. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a five-star rating. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Today we have a special guest, Dr. Hugh Ross. You might remember him. He's been on this program before. And Dr. Hugh Ross and I were, we were at the same, we spoke at the same conference called Dare to Defend about a month ago. And after kind of the, the end of the conference, there was a Q&A and there were me, Dr. Hugh Ross, me and a few other people were on the panel and he was asked some questions and I, I was so fascinated by his answers to these questions about aliens, about flat earth, about the age of the universe, about the Big Bang, that I asked him to come on the show just to, to talk about those answers. So uh, if you don't know who Hugh Ross is, he's an astrophysicist, an astronomer. He's an author of many books, including The Creator and the Cosmos, Why the Universe is the Way It Is, Improbable Planet, Designed to the Core. He's also the founder of Reasons to Believe, and you can find him at reasonstobelieve.org. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Welcome, Dr. Hugh Ross. Oh, thank you. So I want to uh, talk to you because, as I said, we were at the Dare to Defend conference together, and the Q&A was fascinating to me because especially your answers to some of the questions, uh, and I, I just I loved how brilliant your answers were. And so I want to first talk about someone, I think someone came up and asked about, I don't know what the frame of their question was, but they essentially asked about, do aliens exist? Is there life on other planets? And how did you respond to that? Well, I began with a little bit of a joke. My sons asked me if I believed in aliens. And at that time, I wasn't a U.S. citizen. So I pulled out my alien card. (laughs) I went around the neighborhood telling all their friends that I was an alien. Uh, But no, seriously, as an astronomer, uh, we now have discovered uh, over 5,000 planets outside of the solar system, uh, but none of them have the characteristics that permit the existence of life. 
you know, astronomers talk about the liquid water habitable zone, uh, the distance from the star where liquid water could possibly exist. But that's only one of 14 known planetary habitable zones. And of all these thousands of planets we discovered, only one exists in even three of the 14 known habitable zones. And that's the one that exists in all 14. It's the one that both you and I sit upon. And so it's kind of like what Neil deGrasse Tyson said, the universe is out to kill us. Once you get beyond planet Earth, all we see are conditions that are extremely hostile to the existence of advanced life. Now, having said that, I've been on public record since the 1980s. We will find the remains of life on the moon, on Mars, and several other solar system bodies. But that's simply because our planet has experienced so many big meteoritic impacts that literally thousands of tons of Earth material have been exported throughout the solar system. So, for example, on the surface of the moon, we expect to find 20,000 kilograms of Earth soil per every 100 square kilometers. And in one ton of Earth soil, you're going to have 100 quadrillion microbes. And so we're not going to find viable microbes on the moon, but we will find the remains of Earth life on the moon. And what I'm especially excited about is that we'll never find the fossils of Earth's first life on the Earth. Earth's geology has destroyed them, but we will find them on the moon and we find them on the moon, we'll be able to prove who got the origin of life model right, the theists or the atheists. And I got to speak on this at NASA Houston, and I closed my talk off by saying, you need to go for this, because the last time I checked, 100% of the U.S. taxpayer base was made up of theists and atheists. <laughs> you see, yeah, and what you mentioned, you just mentioned uh, that the... The, the geology, what did you say about the geology of the Earth? We, we won't find fossils. Can you explain well, we that a little more? Volcanism, we got plate tectonics, we got erosion. Those geological forces have destroyed the fossils of Earth's first life. But the moon doesn't have these geological processes operating. And so we should be able to go to the moon, find these uh, fossils of Earth's first life, and be able to determine who got the model right. Yeah, and you you kind of get into also theology with the, the idea of aliens. I, I, if I can remember correctly, you said, you know, G Christ came to planet Earth to save humans. So what, kind of relate that to the idea sure. of aliens. Well, for 2,000 years, Christian and Jewish scholars have been arguing, does the Bible allow for the existence of extraterrestrial life? Or does it forbid it? And uh, they all agree that, you know, there's nothing in the Bible that would forbid God creating miracles of life elsewhere. And so uh, it wouldn't be a problem for either Judaism or Christianity if grass was discovered on another planet. The one constraint is a constraint you see in Hebrews 9 and 10, where it says Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, came to earth, and died one time, one place, uh, for all, to save them from sin. And some scholars have argued that would constrain the existence of physical, spiritual beings in need of Redeemer on another planet. But dolphins on another planet wouldn't be any problem. 
Although some scholars have argued, when you read the New Testament, it seems like God is very conservative with his miracles. He only performs those miracles that are necessary to achieve his purpose. And these scholars have argued that God doesn't need uh, more than one planet uh, with life on it. And therefore, they argue that we indeed are alone in the universe. Uh, And as I've argued as an astrophysicist, even if God wanted just one planet on which advanced life exists, given the laws of physics that he chose to govern the universe, you do need a universe with two trillion galaxies where those two trillion galaxies make up a quarter of a percent of all the stuff of the universe. The total mass of the universe must be very exquisitely fine-tuned to get the carbon, the oxygen, and the nitrogen we need for life. Yeah, and um, and you, when you talk about, uh, you mentioned this at the conference, you said um, when the Bible talks about heavens and the earth, it's not talking about the plant, planet earth. To explain right. that. What is, what, is, what, is, what is the Bible saying when it says heavens and the earth? Well, I didn't pick up a Bible until I was 17, and I went through it, and I kept looking for the word universe. And the word never appears in the Old Testament. You do see it in the New Testament, but what I discovered is biblical Hebrew does not have a word for the universe. But it has a phrase translated in English, the heavens and the earth. It's used 13 times in the Old Testament. And it's always used to refer to the totality of physical reality, all matter, energy, space, and time. So that's how the Hebrews, ancient Hebrews, would refer to the universe, the heavens and the earth. So it's not referring to planet Earth. It's referring to the entire universe. Yeah, and that that was kind of a... um... That was kind of a I op- kind of an eye opening moment for me. It was like, wow, oh, okay, that because that makes sense to me because I, it's like how how does the Bible describe the universe and it and that made perfect sense to me. And then you um, and then someone because this seems to be a common theme right now in culture, especially with young people. Um, there's kind of this flat Earth movement. I'm not sure. How, Maybe you can elucidate why, but why, why is this movement happening now? And, and then let's get into kind of some of the, the facts about Flat Earth or lack Well, I think the credit goes to the Internet. I mean, uh, you know, the Internet has generated to try to get you to buy products. And so they constantly feed you stuff uh, that you already believe. And so the impact is it polarizes people. And so you've got people believing we didn't go on the moon. People believe the Holocaust didn't happen. Uh, People believe that the physicists are out there to deceive us, that the world really isn't flat. And so what I've been trying to do at Reasons to Believe is actually train people how to look at the Internet articles and figure out what you can trust and what you can't trust. And what I've been sharing with people, if the article doesn't give you a link to a peer-reviewed paper, then don't give it any credence. A reputable article will give you a link uh, to the peer-reviewed scientific uh, papers on which the claims are based. And so that will help. We'll be right back after this short break. Uh, But as I share with people uh, who do believe, I think it's 2% of the U.S. adult population now seriously is committed to the belief that the world is flat. 
and our astronomers and physicists are in a conspiracy to deceive us. And what I've been sharing with them, look, take a flight from New York to Santiago, Chile, get a night flight, get a window seat, look out at the window and see what happens to the stellar constellations. You know, I've taken such flights myself and you can see the constellations slowly turn upside down. That can only happen if the Earth is a spherical body. Uh, but I've also shared with people one reason we know the Earth isn't flat. Cats would have knocked everything off the edge a long time ago. <laughs> and you, I think one of the arguments for fl that flat earthers use is the, the Hebrew word for, or for the word firmament in the Old Testament. And you talked about that in the Q&A. You talked about what that Hebrew word means. Kind of discuss, talk about that. What is that? What is the idea of firmament and how does that apply to the, this, this flat well, earth? It's actually or a Latin term. It's not a Hebrew term. Okay. It showed up in the early translations of the Bible. Uh, the but when you look at the Hebrew original, it's referring to the sky. And what you see in Genesis 1, that firmament is a place where the birds fly. And it's where we get our rain. Uh, and you get a much fuller explanation of this in Job 37 and 38. I think that's part of the problem. You get a very cryptic sentence in Genesis chapter 1, but you get a big expansion of that in Job 37 and 38. And it's referring to the troposphere. That's where rain clouds form. Uh, that's where uh, the birds fly. And as you look up uh, into the troposphere at night, we get to see the stars that are beyond the troposphere. And and so what so what does the what do they take from that word firmament to mean the flat earthers? Well, the flat earthers are basically looking at a passage in Isaiah where it says God looks down on the circle of the earth, and they said, "Hey, circle is two dimensional; it's not three dimensional." Uh, but as an astronomer, I can tell you that any faraway spherical body will look like a disc. And so you can yeah, like the moon passage in Isaiah 40 <laughs> to be support uh, for a spherical earth or flat earth. They also cite passages where it says, uh, talks about the four corners of the earth. And they said if the earth actually has corners, then it must be flat. Uh, but that Hebrew phrase could also be understood as the four corners of the earth, like the four corners of an orange. And hey, I know astrophysicists at Caltech that talk about the four corners of the Earth. I mean, it's a metaphor that we use. And so it's important when we read Scripture to figure, okay, where can we take this text literally, and where is it using a figure of speech? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the Bible is full of metaphors. Jesus said, I am the door. He's right. not actually a door. Right. Um, so I am the bread of life. So... um but how, who were the first scientists to understand that the, the Earth was spherical? It actually goes back thousands of years. In fact, this idea that the ancients believed in a flat Earth is a complete myth. It was propagated in the 18th and 19th century uh, by people who were taking an anti-biblical perspective. So, yeah, it's a modern uh, claim. You don't see it in ancient uh, societies. And so I've got a new book coming out. It's not yet released. It'll be released later this year. 
or I have a whole chapter on what the ancients believed about the shape of the earth. They were well aware of the crow's nest effect, uh, how you know, if you get higher up, you can see farther away. Uh, that's one evidence that the earth is spherical. Uh, the ancients recognize uh, that as you move north and south, you see different stellar constellations, and the degree to which you move actually enable them to measure not only the shape of the earth, but its diameter. And they were capable of measuring the diameter of the earth to about 1% precision. So the ancients weren't stupid. And, uh, you know, they were building astronomical observatories of significant sophistication. Stonehenge is one example. Uh, It's a stone, uh, you know, facility for making sophisticated astronomical observations. We now know that Stonehenge is not an exception. The ancients built thousands of stone observatories to measure the position of the sun, moon, and stars. Uh, They measured the a shadow of an obelisk, a shadow in wells. Those are other two techniques you can use to measure the shape of the earth and the diameter of the earth. So all around the world, the ancients were well aware that the earth is spherical. Where did, um, for example, like Pythagoras and Aristotle, where did they stand on this issue? Did they believe the earth was spherical? Yes, it was Greek geometers uh, living even before them Uh, that demonstrated that the Earth had to be a spherical body. And it was shortly after Aristotle that Aristophanes not only determined the shape of the Earth, but measured its diameter to 1% precision. Aristarchus and Aristophanes. Right, okay. And talk a little bit more about why, in I think you said the 18th and 19th century, people were denying that. And why was that again? Well, they were trying to uh, you know, discredit uh, the Bible and the Christian faith. It was the Enlightenment era. And so they came up with this idea that the authors of the Bible all believed that the world was flat and that okay. all the ancients believed the world was flat, but the Hebrews simply borrowed <coughs> the cosmology of the nations around them, which is why I'm coming with this book saying that's not at all true. The ancients surrounding Israel all believed that the world was spherical. Uh, Nobody believed that the world was flat. And there's been two books that have been written that expose the myth of the flat earth belief. And so are there any other kind of ideas or theories that flat earthers point to to support their argument? Or is there anything else they could do? Yeah, they also cite the flat dome idea. And Mm -hmm. so uh, they look into uh, the ancient... Uh, literature and say they believe that the world was flat, that there was a metal dome over the earth, and uh, there were stars pasted on the inside of the dome. There was water above the dome, and there were floodgates where that water would be allowed through, and that's where we get our rain. And they're, they're, they're confusing the difference between the fantasy literature of the ancients and their scientific literature. In fact, one example I put in the book would be Say someone 1,500 years from now were to come to California and they're digging around the ruins. Uh, they uncover the ruins of Hollywood. They find these film canisters and uh, they're able to recover the film. And they say, wow, these people living in the 20th century, uh, you know, obviously believe that dinosaurs and humans cohabited because they uncover the film canisters of the mm-hmm. Flintstones. And so it's a similar thing. 
I mean, we in the 21st century have fantasy uh, movies and film and literature. Well, likewise, the ancients. Fantasy literature is something that's pervasive to humanity. We have this amazing imagination. We tell stories to one another. Uh, but the ancients clearly believed that there's a limit to how far up you can pump water. They were irrigating their fields, and they understood the Archimedes principle. So this idea that they believed you could take water from the Earth's ocean and have it pumped up thousands of miles above on a flat dome, they knew that was impossible. They also knew the stars were very far away. They couldn't have been painted on the inside of a dome. They knew the Earth was spherical. Uh, and there's actually an article you can see on the web, an article you can read for free. And it's called The Myth of the Heavenly Flat Dome, or The Myth of the Heavenly Solid Dome. And basically exposes that none of the ancients uh, believed that this dome imagery was actually a description of reality. It's only in their fantasy literature. And so are you saying that, that flat earthers today still believe in this, this metal dome? They cite that. In fact, it even shows up in some of the newer translations of the Bible, uh, where instead of saying uh, that there's an expanse over the earth, they say there's a vault or a dome over the earth. And basically they do that by claiming the ancients believed there was a solid dome. Therefore, the Hebrews must have believed it. And they changed the Bible translation uh, to accommodate that. And I make the point in my new book coming out that that's a recent phenomenon. Nobody translated the Bible that way into the late part of the 20th century. Previous Bible translators all recognize that that was not a possible interpretation of the text. What are some, uh, just a couple of the uh, English translations that use the word vault? Uh, the New International Version. Oh, okay. The 2011, now the 1984 one didn't, but the 2011 version actually puts the word vault in there. And uh, there's two other English translations of the Bible that either use the word vault or dome. But yeah, the most significant one is the New International Version. That's why I always say stick with the ESV, the extremely supreme version. Uh, well, also, uh, stick with your 1984 copy. Okay. Yeah, stick with your 1984 copy of the NIV. If you, yeah, I'm not throwing away my 1984 copy. To me, it's a better translation. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, okay, let's get to the age of the universe. Now, <clears throat> I don't know if you've read this book, The Genesis Debate. Yes. Uh, you was know, one of I, the authors, after all. Oh, <laughs> wait, you were? Okay, I'm, 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 oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's hilarious. I knew that, but I forgot. Uh, yeah, right here. Um, okay, so Hugh Ross and Gleason Archer, the day age view. So in the Genesis debate that you wrote, part of, I'm sorry, um, there you know, are three views. Uh, we, I read this, we had to read this in seminary, but there's three views of the kind of the age of the, of the, the universe. And there's the, the 24 hour view or I'm sorry, not the age of the universe, but the the uh, the the three views on the days of creation. So there's the 24 hour view, which is literal 24 hours day, 24 hour days, seven days, six days, and then one day of rest. There's the day age view, which you argue for. Just briefly explain what the day age view is. 
Well, the day age view is that you have the six creation days in Genesis 1, and the Hebrew word for day has four distinct literal definitions. And one of those four definitions is an extended finite period of time. So the view that uh, we have of Genesis chapter 1, it's six consecutive long periods of time. Contrasted with the view where it says it's six consecutive 24-hour periods. Right. So the day-age view is like epochs or eras. Right, um, right. And then the last, the last view in this book is the framework view, where it's just basically the, the, the creation uh, narrative is a literary framework. Yeah, it's the non-chronological interpretation. The calendar day people believe it's chronological and historical, just like we do at Reasons to Believe. The framework people say, well, there's a limited chronology, but we shouldn't look at the six creation days as being consecutive events. Right, and which leads me to, this is what you talked to, this leads me to the age of the universe, because you talked about this, because there, are, there, there's young earthers and old earthers, right? And which creates problems for Genesis. Um, but so uh, you, someone asked you about, I think about the age of the universe, and you, you went to Genesis one two, and tell us about what that, what that verse, it, how that verse kind of helps us to ex- understand this and explain this, explain, sure. explained in old Earth. Well, the accounts of the six creation days begins in Genesis 1-3. And what I was explaining is, well, you've got Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 that predate, or pre yeah, the uh, description of the six days. And so if you look at those two first sentences of Genesis 1, the grammar is different than the rest of the chapter, and the verb order is different. And a number of Hebrew scholars have commented on this and saying, uh, the verb order and the grammar of Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2 implies that there's a passage of time between God creating the universe and his forming of the earth in Genesis 1, 2, and a second passage of time between God forming the earth and the beginning of creation day one. So I was basically appealing to the young earth creationists who asked me the question saying, you know, you could still have Uh, these days as 24-hour periods, and not have a problem with the age of the earth or the universe, because Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 allow for an extended period of time before we even get to the beginning of creation day one. And so why are we Christians fighting over the age of the earth? Which the fossil record, record shows. I mean, how so how old is the universe? universe is 13.79 billion years old, plus or minus 0.04 billion. Uh, the Earth, we know more accurately, that's 4.5662 billion years, plus or minus 0.0001 billion. <laughs> that's pretty accurate, precise. Um, and so, yeah, so I found that really fascinating because you don't have to, you don't have to have this internal conflict about you know, the young earth, the young earth and young earth creationists uh, versus old earth creation. There's, you don't need that conflict. You don't, but I think I'm trying to exhort people, realize the Bible is 66 books. Not all the answers are in Genesis. You've got 65 other books. 
and we're compelled to look at all 65 books, interpret all the creation texts in them, and you'll find over two dozen lengthy creation texts in the Old and New Testament. And we are to interpret those historically, literally, and consistently. And I've written a book called A Matter of Days, where I make the point that if you consistently and literally interpret all of Bible's creation texts, uh, then you realize that these days have to be consecutive long periods of time. It can't just be 144 hours. The Bible itself uh, rules out that interpretation. But the problem I see is just like people don't integrate all the scientific disciplines, you got people that are not integrating all the books of the Bible. Right. And uh, and then I think someone asked you about the Big Bang theory, and you you mentioned that scientists are moving away from this theory because of its implications. Why are they doing it? What are the implications, and why are scientists moving well, away? Well, they were. They're not anymore because the evidence is now overwhelming and pervasive. But in the early part of the 20th century, uh, the Big Bang was first proposed by Belgian priests, astrophysicists, uh, George Lemaitre, and when he proposed it, uh, there were a number of astrophysicists who said, we can't have this. It makes the universe way too young. And if we, <laughs> we want to salvage the theory of Charles Darwin, we need the universe to be a whole lot older than just several billion years. And at that time, astrophysicists in studying the stars thought that the stars had the capability of burning for trillions of years. So they were saying, the Big Bang model is wrong. We know stars have been burning for trillions of years, and uh, therefore the universe must be quadrillions of years old. And if it's that old, we can save the theory of Charles Darwin. Uh, but then as we move through the 20th century, the observational evidence accumulated. Moreover, by 1956, physicists understood how stars uh, burn through nuclear fusion to make heavier elements. And with that understanding came the recognition, stars are not trillions of years old. They're only millions or billions of years old. And so by the end of the 20th century, the young universe astronomers won. Uh, There is a recognition, yes, the universe is only billions of years old. It's not trillions or quadrillions. But the whole motivation to try to make the universe much older was a desire to save naturalistic biological evolution. To support Darwinism, right. And so, but, but scientists uh, uh, overall, the, the majority report is, is still uh, that, the, that the big, big, when did the Big Bang, in their view, occur? When did it occur? 13.79 billion years right. ago. Okay. And there's still some physicists who are arguing against the Big Bang, but they're physicists who are committed to deny the beginning of the universe and the Christian Bible. And they make it very clear that their objections to the Big Bang are not scientific, they are theological. Yeah, so the Big Bang did occur, but it was it occurred it was because <laughs> God spoke it into existence. Right. Yeah. So there actually was a Big Bang, but um, not not the Big Bang that scientists want to, not out of a black hole or what. I forgot where, where do scientists believe, how did the Big Bang occur, according to scientists? 
Well, in several of my books, I talk about the space-time theorems, which prove that not only does the universe have a beginning, space and time have a beginning, which implies that the cause of the universe must be an agent outside of space and time. And that's where the Bible is distinguished from saying the Buddhist commentaries, Hinduism, because they posit a beginning of the universe, actually multiple beginnings of the universe, but that the creation happens within space and time. The Bible says, no, it's independent outside of space and time. That when God created the universe, that's when he created space and time. And we now got space-time theorems to prove that. In fact, uh, one of the physicists involved in developing the latest of the space-time theorems said, there is now no escape. We have to face up to the problem of an actual beginning of the universe. And what he's referring to as the problem is, there must be an agent beyond space and time that created our universe. Yeah. Well, yeah, so this is, these are all fascinating subjects. Um, and tell us again, what, what's, the, your, what's the, your book that's coming out soon? It's going to be called uh, Defending or Rescuing Inerrancy. That's the title, Rescuing Inerrancy. And it's all about how God gave us two books, the book of nature and the book of scripture, and how the book of nature, the scientific record, supports the accuracy and truthfulness of the book of scripture and the book of scripture the bible gives legitimacy to the study of science as a revelation of truth so god has given us two utterly trustworthy and reliable books that corroborate one another and when when is the release of i know you mentioned at the conference you mentioned there was a paper shortage but when will that book be released do you well, think? it all depends how fast we can get it back from the printer uh, the only thing we have to do right now is finish up the index, uh, approve the book cover, and then get it off to the printer. And so hopefully within a few months, the book will be released. Can people pre-order it right now? Not yet. Uh, we don't allow pre-orders until we know when the book is going to arrive. Okay. And right now, given the paper shortage, it's difficult to predict when a book is going to be able to come off a of press. Okay. Well, keep us posted on that. Sure. Uh, we're going to leave it there, but thank you so much, Dr. Hugh Ross, for joining us today and, and, and giving us these interesting, interesting, fascinating and uh, great answers on, on these kind of uh, questions that, that came up during this conference. I appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. If anybody wants free chapters of my books, reasons.org slash Ross. Right. Okay, great. And they can... Um, Obviously, people can contact you at reasons.org sure. as well. Great. Well, thank you guys for watching, and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Beckett Cook Show. Your support makes this content possible. All episodes of The Beckett Cook Show are also available on YouTube. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. Thank you to the team at Life Audio for their partnership with us. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you will find more faith-centered podcasts about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. Looking for ways to stay positive? Brighten your day with the free story behind podcast. Hear weekly short stories that showcase true joy, love, and hope. 
Listen now at lifeaudio.com or by searching for Story Behind wherever you get your podcasts.